0: Perhaps we can shed some light from today's Torah portion on how we can increase a little bit more peace in the world, peace in our own lives, inner peace, peace in our homes, it's called Shalom bayis. peace in the world, peace in the Middle East. How can we do that? All right, so this week's Torah portion is called Naso, and it happens to be the longest Torah portion in the Torah. <laughs> Okay? Longest Torah person in the Torah. Does anyone want to take a guess how many verses are in this week's Parsha? Close. Good. Great guess. So there are 176 verses in this week's Parsha. So you were pretty close, Julia just 76 off 200 would have been closer but you're still pretty you're still in ballpark okay and just as an interesting fact does anyone know what the longest psalm is in Tehillim in the book of Psalms 119 excellent and how many verses are in that one good close you want to change your guess this time okay pretty close closer bingo 176 same exact number now what's significant of the number now what about the longest tractate in the talmud so that one you might not know that one's called um i think it's baba basra or baba Kama. oops i'm actually forgetting which one it is right now oh this is being recorded bad rabbi um but anyway how many verses in that one? How many pages? Sorry, we don't have verses in the Talmud. How many pages? And you guessed it. Good guess. Steph, yeah, again, 176 pages. Pretty cool. Coincidence? I don't think so. So what's the significance of the number 176? It's not a typical Jewish number. What's the significance of the number 176? So I think we can reveal the significance of the number 176 through that actual um chapter in psalms and tehillim of Tes 119 which is made up of 22 different paragraphs okay 22 different paragraphs does anyone is anyone familiar with it does anyone know in the hebrew what what those 22 paragraphs represent does anyone know what the number 22 is in hebrew number 22 kate good to see you mike good to see you the number or ha- not seeing you yet but hopefully we'll see you soon uh, the number 22 is significant because there are 20... How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph base? Right again, 22. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So the, the Psalms 119 has 8 verses for each letter of the Aleph base. So there's 8 verses for Aleph, 8 verses for base, and so on and so forth. And 22 times 8 equals 176. So somehow this number, 176, represents... Now the number 22 is all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which represents the DNA of creation, like the building blocks of creation. We talk about... In fact, this class is called the DNA of creation, and we've talked about at many time periods the spiritual structure of the universe, how God creates the universe with 10 different energies. But the actual building blocks of the energy of the atomic structure... According to Kabbalah, is made up of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Those are the 22 building blocks of reality. And it's just interesting to note that according to quantum physics, modern quantum physics, what is the most basic building block of matter? Any wannabe physicists in the house? Any real physicists in the house? So according to modern quantum physics the theory is called string theory oh okay good mike good that's that's something else i don't even know what that is actually i didn't read about that one yet um you want to tell us what it is mike higgs boson particle mike can you explain what it is maybe all right someone google it explain it to us at the end of our class so according to string theory the smallest building block of everything is called strings and why are they called strings enjoy Mike enjoy Um, did you bring it up for the rest of us why are they called strings because what do strings do how do you make music musicians Ronnie They they vibrate So at the smallest part, basis of all matter is tiny little particles that vibrate and the way they vibrate determines the energy that they create the type of atom or the type of quark that they create so i that's beyond my pay grade i don't know anything more than that but when i read this i literally fell off my chair because essentially what it's saying is that the universe is made up of vibrations and what else is made up of vibrations Yeah, like what? How does the Torah say the world was created? What kind of act? He said it. God created the world with speech. And God said, let there be light. And Kabbalah explains that that speech was made up of letters. And those letters are made up of vibrations. So literally, science is verifying what the Torah says, according to Kabbalah, is that the universe is made up of God's divine speech, literally reverberating and vibrating from the beginning of creation until now. And in fact, the the Baal Shem to, founder of the Hasidic movement, emphasizes that if God were not to speak every moment, then the universe would cease to exist. It's not like we're here and here forever. We're constantly being recreated by God, re-injecting thought particles into reality. And the Balatanya, the, uh, the founder of Chabad, goes even further to say that when it says that God spoke, it doesn't really mean speech, like the way we talk. God doesn't have a mouth. What it really means is that speech, if we wanted to theoretically explain what speech is, speech is the process of taking what's hidden inside my mind and bringing it out in a way that you can connect to it and relate to it so it says the Baal that's what it means when it says that God spoke he took his hidden essence and his hidden desire and his hidden mind and brought it out into physical tangible form that we can have a relationship with him that we can exist and actually connect to God so that's that's just all by way of introduction okay any questions on any of that because that's not really the point of tonight's class okay good so, uh, this week's Parsha, however, has a different significance. And I think the significance in this week's Parsha that we're going to see is the number 3. We have not really talked about the number 3 yet in Kabbalah. We've talked about the number 6, the number 7, number 8. We haven't really talked about the number 3. But what you see from the number 176, sorry to complete my thought, is that it is the 22 letters of the alphabet, which are... The 22 building blocks of existence times the number 8. And the number 8, for those of you who remember, is the number of Torah or the number of transcendence, the supernatural world, the miraculous spiritual world. So it's bringing together 22 energies of existence with that which is beyond existence, the number 8. Okay, so perhaps there's going to be some sort of connection here, of the connection between 22 which is existence reality with number eight which is the super reality the meta existence spirituality okay everyone with me so far alright so now let's talk about the number three in this week's parsha we talk about I'll tell you just some of the main themes in the parsha okay having not looked at it since last year I'm gonna uh, give it a quick run through with you right now so we can just get some of the main themes this week's parsha takes us back again now check this out this is crazy, okay? Jaylene and those of you who have been with us from the beginning, Matt, you're going you're gonna to remember something interesting. that We're going back in this week's Parsha, back in time to the Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the second new moon of the month of Nisan, exactly one year after the Exodus. So we got out of Egypt on the 15th of the month of Nisan. We journeyed in the desert 49 days, arrived at Mount Sinai, Receive the Torah on the 50th day, right? 49 symbolizes 7 times 7, which is all the aspects of physicality. And then we arrive at the 8th dimension, which is the 50th, right? 1 above 49, which is the receiving of the Torah. Then we stayed at Mount Sinai for quite a while, and we started building the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the desert, the mini Mount Sinai that's going to journey with us into the land of Israel, the mini temple. And the construction of that tabernacle was completed on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Before that, seven days prior, there were seven days of inauguration, of inaugurating that Mishkan. And then on the eighth day was the new month of Nisan. And that's when the tabernacle was completed and the Divine Presence descended into the tabernacle. Okay? Okay. And we're back there again in this week's parsha. We're going back to that day. That day is discussed in three of the five books of the Torah. We discussed it in Exodus. We discussed it in Vayikra in um, in Leviticus, and now we're discussing it in the book of Bamidbar Numbers. Okay, so we went back in time. We're going back in time to discuss again that very important day in Jewish history. And initially, we begin talking about three tribes. Of, the, of Levi, the Leviim, my tribe, whose job it was to carry the different a- components of the tabernacle. And we talk about these three different tribes. Then we talk about the three different camps, encampments in the desert. Three encampments. So three tribes of Levi, three families of Levi, then three encampments in the desert. We have what's called the Machane Shekhinah, the, the, the Divine Presence encampment. That's where the tabernacle is. Then there's the Machane Leviah, the Levites live and do their service in the uh, surrounding camp. And then there's a third encampment, which is the Makna Yisrael, the camp of, of Israel. And that's where the 12 tribes of Israel, the remaining 12 tribes of Israel, have their encampment. So again, the number three. It's interesting to note that the Talmud says the Torah was given in threes. What does that mean? It says it was given in the third month. The month of Sivan is the third month. Nisan E R Sivan from the uh, first of the months, which is the month of Nisan. And it was given to three camps, and it was given through Moses, who was the third born in his family. So there's, again, the significance of the number three. And then in this week's partial we have something called a sota. A sota is controversial. Okay, guys, don't throw anything at me or hate me. It's a story of a, a woman who's suspected of adultery by her husband she he he saw her flirting or schmoozing with a guy another man and he told her please do not hang out with that man again and then he caught her with him alone in a room and now he really suspects something just happened because he already told his wife he doesn't want he doesn't feel comfortable with her schmoozing with that guy and then he found her them alone together in a room and he suspects that something happened so there's a very interesting ritual they go to the temple and they perform this very strange ritual which I'll, we'll discuss momentarily. I just want to run through the themes, and we'll come back to this. And the ritual is meant to bring them back together. And if the ritual goes well, it proves her innocence. And if she's guilty, then she uh, has a, tra- a horrific and uh, terrible death. Okay, that's, that's the story. Okay, now we're moving right along uh, to more, more, uh, more happy subjects. Um, we have something called the Nazir, the laws of the Nazir. A Nazir is somebody who feels that maybe his body's taking over. Maybe he has a drinking problem a little bit. He feels a little too physical, and he decides he wants to become abstinent from alcohol, and he swears off of wine, which was like the main alcoholic beverage of the time. And he has no. He doesn't eat wine. He becomes very cure careful of ritual impurity, and he doesn't cut his hair. Who's the most favorite famous Nazir? in uh, jewish history shimshon samson you ever heard of samson samson was a nazir from birth samson never cut his hair which was the source of his strength okay that's the famous story of a nazir um, okay there's another famous jewish nazir but we're not going to talk about him tonight That there's a class for another religion um, okay and moving right along if you didn't get that reference then good that means you have a good jewish upbringing um, <laughs> Alright, moving right along. Uh, speak to me after class. <laughs> um, we have something called the priestly br- blessing. This is called berchas kohanim, Berchar kohanim, which is the blessing that the priests, the kohanim, give the Jewish people. And they're commanded in this week's partial the, the descendants of Aaron, to give this blessing. Dan- Danny, Daniel, are, you're a Kohen, aren't you? Do you know the berchas kohanim, Daniel? or he's, he's not really you with us Danny hope he's hope he's listening and just can't get to his phone oh he's he's coming okay but you have you ever said it so for those of you who are familiar with star trek you might be familiar with one component of the Berkus any any star trek fans out there or you're not going to admit that you're a nerd in public so famous famous uh, thing in star trek is doctor spock Right, played by uh, Leonard Nimoy um, has this thing called a, uh, the, the Vulcan sign or something. And he goes like this. You guys familiar? Everyone? Everyone's familiar with this. So where did he get this from? So Leonard Nimoy is a Kohen. And Leonard Nimoy, when, when he was given his role as Dr. Spock, decided he wanted to give him a unique sign. And he chose the sign of the Kohanim. This is the sign that the Kohanim make when they bless the Jewish people. They put their hands together, they cover their hand, their hands with a talus, so you can't actually look at their hands and they go like this and they say the three-part blessing that I'm going to share with you right now. So again, what's the significance of this symbol? A triangular shape. Right? Triangle, of course, is made of three sides and they give something called the three-part blessing. You've, I'm sure you've heard it in English. I'll say it in Hebrew first. Hashem May the Lord bless you and keep you. panav May Hashem shine His light of His face upon you and grace you. Hashem panav May Hashem turn or lift His face, up His face towards you and grant you peace. Three part blessing. And the Kohanim say this every day in the land of Israel. Sephardim, Matt, am I right? Sephardim also say it every day in America. But Ashkenazim say it only on holidays. Matt, am I right about that? Sephardim? Sephardim, Matt says do it every Shabbat. Some Sephardim, I think, do it every single day. As they do in Israel. In Israel, they do it every single day. During the prayer services. And in America, we just do it. Ashkenazim just do it on holidays. So... Again, three-part blessing. And then at the end, we have a whole lot of pages that are exactly the same, identical pages. They're all exactly the same of the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes bringing special donation, donations to the temple, to the tabernacle. So they brought different wagons and gold and spices and different things okay so that is the Parsha I just ran through everything and now I want to try to hone in on a few of the themes so let's start with Sota okay I want to start with this crazy story and this the chronology of the Parsha of this woman who is suspected of being adulterous and they go to the temple and I want to ask you guys my friends right now what do you think is the worst sin that a Jew can do that encapsulates all sins adultery Really? (laughs) So Julia says adultery and then she changed her mind to Lush and Hara, speaking badly about other people. Okay. Why do you say that's idolatry, Steph? Steph says idolatry. Why, Steph? Why is idolatry so bad? Okay. Golden Calf. Good. Okay, but... But I'm not asking you in terms of, don't get too biblical here. I'm not asking you in terms of what the punishments are in the Torah or what the consequences are in the Torah. I'm asking you, in just in the, philosophically speaking, what, what is the worst sin a, person, a Jew can do? What's the worst thing a Jew can do, basically? What's the source of all sin? Why is idolatry so bad? Okay, good, good. Denying God. Idolatry. Mike, excellent. Are you saying something different than idolatry? are you saying that's what idolatry is? Do you you know what idolatry is? So if you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are written on two different tablets. Okay, Ten Commandments are written on two different tablets. The first two commandments are written, are the first... The right side the first tablet is mitzvahs between us and God and the left side is mitzvahs between us and other people okay so the first tablet the first commandment is that doubt you have one God is to, to belief in one God okay and that corresponds on the left side they all correspond to each other with no don't murder because when you murder what you're essentially doing is you're wiping out the godliness within another person you're denying the godliness that exists in another person All right the second commandment what's the second of the ten commandments anyone thou shalt yeah yeah not to work thou shalt not have other gods. What does that correspond to in the mitzvahs between us and other people? What's the parallel in relationships not to worship another God? What is the parallel in our own life? Adultery, Rebecca, first time here, and she's already killing it. Amazing. Adultery, because when we when a person worships another God, what they're essentially doing is cheating on God. They're saying you are not the only. Force in my life. You are not the only reality in my life. There's something else. And when a person cheats on their spouse, it is the greatest betrayal of the unity and the connection and the bond of marriage. Is to go behind someone and literally replace them with someone else. It's essentially the same idea as as idolatry, adultery, and idolatry. But let's take it one step further. What's so bad about idolatry? because as Mike said it's essentially denying God so if we wanted to crystallize the worst sin what's a representation of the denial of God's existence what's the greatest representation that I could do in a physical action to say there is no God I'm denying God's existence okay I mean that's denying your best friend's marriage and it's denying that God said not to eat cheeseburgers. But what what's a single act that would be symbolic representative of me making a public statement that there is no God? Of course, whenever we do a sin, any sin, the uh, the, the the Hasidic sources that Tanya explains, any sin is idolatry. Because any time we do a sin, we're essentially denying God's existence, right? When you eat a cheeseburger, you're also denying God's existence. You're saying, God doesn't care about this. God doesn't exist. At this moment, I'm thinking only about my stomach and not about, if I, I'm not thinking about my health. Because if I thought about my health, I wouldn't eat cheeseburgers either. But I'm thinking only about myself. I'm not thinking about God's existence. Any sin is essentially denying God's existence. But what is the greatest way I can represent that, embody that in an action? Come on, guys, think. So, I'm going to help you but I want you guys to keep thinking don't stop don't stop I know it's hard I know it's hard but we have to break out of the spell of of uh, capitalism and American uh, uh, Americanism laziness that prevents us from thinking we got you guys got this think about it okay ready ready if I were to the one of the worst things that you could do is something called a chil hashem we talked about this before here Chil Hashem literally means to disgrace or to make mundane God's name. And that, 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 that happens whenever a Jew does something wrong in public. Someone who is clearly identifiably Jewish because of their yarmulke or their last name. And they go out and they do they cheat, they commit fraud, or they, they do something horrible uh, publicly, uh, Bernie Madoff. Epstein, Weinberg, or whatever, all these guys, you know, when they do something bad, the media is all over it, as Jews are doing something wrong. And they always pointed out in the media that he happened to donate a lot of money to Israel. And they even take for it right now, when Israel does something that the world thinks is wrong, now I don't know if the world's wrong about it being wrong, it doesn't make it a chil Hashem, right? If the world says, it's wrong to defend yourself because you're Jews, so that doesn't make it a chil Hashem. But you see, when the world you see that the world, holds Jews, the world holds Jews to a different standard. And they should hold us to a different standard. Because we are God's representatives on earth. That's our mission, is to reveal to the world that there's a God and that God wants something from us. So that's called a chil Hashem, that's disgracing God's name. And the, to do that in public is one of the worst things. But what's the ultimate disgrace of God's name that you could do publicly? Yes, and how do you do that? What's a symbolic way of doing that? Symbolically. If I were going to put that into an an action, how? Okay, Matt says burning a Torah. So let's just simplify that. Taking God's name, putting it on a piece of paper, and doing what? What? Erasing it, ripping up God's name. Literally, I'm symbolically denying God's existence. That's Chil HaShem. It's denying, disgracing God's name. HaShem literally means the name, the name of God. Okay, do you understand? that? That's the worst thing a person could do. Again, of course, every, there are many other ways that we can do that. Every sin is just denying God's existence. But to get up publicly, write God's name and rip it up. That's why we don't write God's name ever, unless you're writing a holy object. And if you write a holy object, that object now has holiness. It has sanctity. A Torah scroll, what happens when a Torah scroll is no longer usable? It has to be buried. It's like a human being. It has sanctity of a soul. It has spiritual sanctity. The holiest thing in this world. All right? Same thing with mezuzah, to fill in holy books, Torah books, right? Don't have God's name written in them usually for that reason. Mine does. has God's name written in it, so I have to be very careful with this book can't put it in the bathroom, can't put other things on top of it. So, to take God's name and publicly rip it up is the most worst the worst thing you can do. Again, it's symbolically the worst thing you can do. So what happens when this woman, who is suspected of having cheated on her husband, goes to the temple? The Kohen, the high priest, in public, in front of everyone, writes a scroll. And on that scroll he writes several verses from the Torah from this week's Parsha, including God's name. And then what does he do with that scroll? He puts it in water and blots out the whole thing. How could he do that? And then the woman has to drink this water. Okay? And that's and if nothing happens to her, if she doesn't die, a brutal and gruesome death, then it's a proof that she's kosher, and the husband and her have to be remarried, go back together, he has to forgive her, it means she didn't do anything wrong, and she gets blessed with lots of children, or beautiful children, and okay, end of story. But how is it that the Kohen is literally the one time that he's erasing God's name? So says the Talmud, we see from here, that if the worst thing you can do is to erase God's name, So they're only allowed to do it for the greatest declaration of God in the world. So what is that? Bringing together a husband and wife. When a husband and wife live in peace, God says, I will gladly erase my name in order to bring a man and wife together. Because that's how important it is that a husband and wife should live in peace. Which tells us that that if the worst thing you can do is to erase God's name, and you're allowed to do it to bring peace between husband and wife, you see that husband and wife is the greatest possible mitzvah is have is is a is a kosher is a Jewish marriage, a Jewish home. So why is that? Why is that so so significant? What significance of husband and wife? So says the Talmud, an amazing thing. If you take the word for husband, man in Hebrew, is Ish. And you take the word woman, Isha. They're actually the same word. They both have the letter Aleph and Shin. The only difference is that Ish has a Yud in between and Isha has a hay at the end. So they're made up of two similar letters, Aleph and Shin, and two different letters, Yud and hey Says the Talmud, when there's peace between husband and wife, when there's Shalom between husband and wife, the shchina. God's presence is with them, the letters Yud He, which is God's name. But when there's not peace between husband and wife, the yud and the he disappear, and you're left with the letters Aleph Shin, which spells Ash, fire. It becomes a fire that burns them up. So somehow God's presence is what brings together man and woman somehow when men and women are together united in the the harmony of marriage there is a divine presence that's revealed but when they're not when they're not living in harmony it is a burning and consuming fire fire of strife and anger and, and fighting so what essentially what it's telling us and there's another talmudic dictum that you're allowed to you're not allowed to sell a torah scroll can't sell a Torah scroll if you need to pay money for your rent. can't tell, sell, sell your Torah scroll to pay for your rent or for your food or for anything. But you're allowed to tell, sell a Torah scroll for one thing. Do you know what it is? To help someone get married. You're allowed to sell a Torah scroll. Why? Because what's the goal of the Torah? Is to reveal God in the world. Like we said, Kiddush Hashem, revealing that God is everywhere. That God is with us. The purpose of the Jewish people is to reveal God in the world. And the greatest manifestation of that is in a Jewish home. The greatest manifestation of God's name in this world, in the flesh, the greatest re- revelation of God's oneness exists through marriage. So the point that the Talmud says that a person is not complete until they're married. So why is marriage the epitome? Of the revelation of godliness in this world so the Torah tells us that Adam and Eve were created we've talked about this before you have probably heard it were created as one being you guys remember this have you learned it that Adam and Eve were actually created as an androgynous being that has both male, was both male and female on one side was male and the other side was female and god caused them to fall asleep and ripped them apart that's the story of the rib right it's not really the rib it's the side god took off the side of adam and created eve so adam and eve were one being they were ripped apart and the goal says the torah is that they should come back together and attach themselves to each other and be like one flesh so they were together god ripped them apart the goal is to come back together So what's the obvious question to ask on that story that's true it was was easy but you don't have to travel all four corners of the earth either okay so guys what's the obvious question on that story What's what's the point if the point is to come back together why separate us or if the point is to be separate why start us together So the answer is, is that everything in life takes place in threes. And I want to teach you now the secret of the number three. Any philosophy majors here are familiar with a famous philosopher who was very much inspirational to the theories of Karl Marx and communism. And that was the philosopher Hegel. Hegel came up with a theory That is very Jewish. Let's see, was Hegel Jewish? I'm going to Google it. I'm not sure. I don't think he was. Uh, No, he was not. He was not. Um, So Hegel's theory is that every phase of life takes place in three stages. The first is called the thesis thesis is a statement an idea a reality a concept and then immediately the thesis is surround is followed by something called the antithesis antithesis is the forces that come against that thesis you kind of try to start a new revolution a new idea So you're going to come up with that new idea, that's the thesis. Then comes the antithesis, that's the opposite of that idea, which comes to fight against it, to prevent it. And protests in the street, right? Smear campaign, cancel culture. And then, eventually, things settle down. The dust settles down, and then you get the third and final stage, which is called synthesis. Synthesis is the coming together of the thesis and the antithesis to come out with the ultimate picture, which is a combination of the two ideas, the middle way. That is the most Jewish concept ever. Because that is the foundation of all of Kabbalah. We've talked about the ten spheres, the ten energies. The ten energies always go in a paradigm of threes. One extreme, the other extreme, the middle. In in Jewish history, in the Torah, that's Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The three forefathers. Not four, three four fathers. Okay? The three forefathers, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. One is the extreme, Avram is the extreme energy of chesed, kindness. Yitzchak is the extreme energy of Gevura strength. Yaakov is the energy of teferis, balance, harmony. That is the goal, is to achieve balance in our own life and in the world. That's what the Torah, the goal of the Torah is to help us to achieve balance and unity. To reveal God's oneness in the world. How do we do that? Is to the coming together of something called Shalom. What is Shalom? Shalom is the embodiment of synthesis. Peace. Julia says peace. What does peace mean? What is peace? In English. Peace, the absence of war. So shalom is not peace. It's translated as peace, but that is incorrect. Peace means the absence of war. Essentially, the English word peace is synonymous with the English word pieces. Peace means I'm in my corner, you're in your corner, we're not fighting, we have peace. Right now, are we at peace with peace? someone in china that you never met before you at peace with someone in china that you ever met before according to the english definition according to the english definition yes you're at peace you're not fighting a peaceful person in china not someone who's hacking into uh your bank account right now all right but what oh covid all right we're not let's not get into that now all right I didn't mean China. Uh, someone in uh, Guatemala. Are you at peace with someone in Guatemala right now? The answer is, according to the English, the English definition of peace, yes, you're at peace. You're not fighting. According to the Torah perspective, no, you are not at peace with someone in Guatemala or Southeast Asia or anywhere else in that world. So what's the Torah definition of peace? Harmony. The word shalom is does not mean peace. The word Shalom comes from the Hebrew word Shalem. Shalem means completion, wholeness. A daver Shalem is something whole. On Shabbos we're supposed to make a blessing on challah that is Shalem, a whole piece of challah, not one that has a bite taken out of it. Okay, so Shalemus, Shalemut means completion. The word Shalom means completion, wholeness. Shalom only exists with someone that you Let me ask. All right, sorry. Let me let me rephrase. What is a greater manifestation of Shalom, of completion, of oneness? When you and I agree with everything or when we disagree? Ah Excellent. So, Shalom does not exist with someone that you're the same as. That's not Shalom. That's the same as someone in Guatemala. That's not peace. That's not completion. That's lack of discord. That's lack of fighting. Peace, for example, if you think of John Lennon, right? John Lennon has a famous song about world peace. What's that song called? Love, Love Me Do? No, yes. Imagine. Imagine. Imagine is John Lennon's vision of world peace. John Lennon's vision of world peace is communism. It is not a Jewish vision of shalom. John Lennon's vision of world peace is no religions, no countries, no boundaries, no differences. And then the world can be as one. That is not Jewish. We don't believe oneness requires everyone to be the same. We don't believe oneness requires us to take away boundaries and borders and religions and cultures and ethnic identities. Oneness, shalom, exists. Specifically when there are different countries and different cultures and different values and different societies and different people coming together despite their differences. That is the greatest revelation of Shalom. And that is our goal, is that the entire world is not, we don't want the whole world to become Jewish. We want the world to come together as one in recognition of the oneness of God, that we're all in this together, that we all have one source, one creator, one purpose. We're unified as a human race in one nation under God shalom peace is a jewish invention in the pagan world there was no concept of peace there was no concept of world peace world peace is a jewish invention it's written on the outside of the united nations you know what it's called the wall outside the united nations it's called the isaiah wall because on that they have the words the immortal words of isaiah of the prophet Yeshaya, that one day the world will come together and they will transformed their swords into plowshares and they'll no longer practice war. That is a Jewish invention. In the pagan world, the best you had was Pax Ramana. The Roman peace was that a ceasefire. Just like what's happening in Gaza, hopefully, tomorrow. I won't shoot you, you won't shoot me. Is that shalom? No, that's the absence of war. Just because they stopped firing missiles from Gaza into Israel, and just because the Israelis stopped shooting, trying to destroy Hamas, does not mean there's peace, there, uh, shalom, in Gaza in the Middle East shalom is when we can recognize that we disagree we can recognize that we have differences but we're going to bridge the gap between our differences and achieve harmony recognizing that we might not agree on everything but we're all in this together one world one people all right we we mike ...together through the conductor, right, who's leaving the piece, you know, you, Excellent. Have, you end up having, you know... Mike, I always say that analogy. That's unbelievable. Really? Yeah, a conductor, I, I, I the only way you can have peace is under one unified conductor. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, famous American philosopher, said, every man must march to the beat of his own drummer. That is incorrect. If every man marches to the beat of his own drummer, you're going to have noise. That's called chaos. The goal is that we should all learn to play our instrument, as Mike said. We all have a unique instrument to play, but we have to learn to listen to the conductor. Because the conductor is synthesizing and bringing together all the different perspectives and all the different talents and unique aspects of every person under one umbrella, under one organization, under one goal. That is shalom. Shalom requires recognizing that there's a conductor to the world. So, the greatest manifestation before the Messianic era, goal of the Messianic era is that the entire world should come together in peace. In Shalom, in Shlamis, the world should come together as one. That's the Messianic vision. Mashiach is the conductor who alerts us to recognize that there's one, one real conductor. Right? That's the idea of the Messianic era. But before the Messianic era, what is the greatest manifestation of shalom in the world? Husband and wife. When man and woman who are deliberately opposites, who don't see eye to eye on anything, who speak different languages, come from different planets, men are from Mars, women are are from Venus who have completely different emotional needs and physical needs and different thinking patterns. When they learn to come together despite their differences, that is the greatest revelation of oneness, of shlemas, of completion in the world. So God separates Adam and Eve in order that they can have a yearning for that experience of unity that they once had, but they have to come together now as different beings to learn to bridge the gaps between their differences not to become one again to become like one and what's a greater expression of unity of oneness when everyone is singing in unison or when everyone's singing in harmony 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 is a much greater expression of oneness when the different parts come together as different parts. Not losing yourself in another, but becoming greater than the sum of the parts. Two coming together as one, but remaining two. And that's the purpose of rea- of creation. God is absolute oneness, infinite oneness, no parts or pieces. God splits himself into a physical world of multiplicity. That's this world. and The goal is that we should reveal his oneness, but now in the parts and the pieces on earth that's harmony that's the goal of life right and one of my friends uh and mentors rabbi Feldhebs, has an amazing metaphor for this that you ever make a puzzle when you were a kid like a hundred a 200 piece puzzle thousand piece puzzle you ever make one of those amazing puzzles right you work really hard on it and then when you finish do you ever see someone glue it together and mount it and put it on the wall yeah so so why why i did i've talked about it last year I don't remember. Why do people why do you show me again, Julie, I wanna see it. Why do people put the puzzle on the wall? Why can't they just cut out the picture on the box? Right? The picture's on the box. Why can't they just put that picture on the same. Why is it not the same? Because you're not putting in the work. It's too easy. Nothing that's easy in life is worth it. Okay, it's too easy. Rebecca, were you gonna add something? yeah it's about it's like it's the same as hanging up your own painting kind of you worked for it's it like, yeah it's you yours it yourself, you built you it. it but not only that you want, the, you want the reward the appreciation you want someone to come in and say oh my god that's amazing did you do it ah okay so there's a certain recognition but there's more than that do you ever see one of these paintings a pen a point list painting where you get very close and you just see lots of dots, and then you stand back you and you it, see you it? see an amazing symphony. Yes, you can stop showing it, Julia, That's amazing. What's but I think that that's more amazing than the photograph of New York City. What's so amazing is that it's made up of lots of pieces, pieces. pieces, lots of pieces yeah. that come together as one. That's the beauty of a paint of a of there's, a there's of pictures, a puzzle. Is you created it not only did you create it not only did you work for it but you brought together random pieces that had nothing to do with each other there was confusion and chaos and you brought out harmony that was hidden in those random pieces that's the story of our lives by the way our lives look the way they look because we only see half of the picture we don't see the full picture I heard an amazing metaphor today right if you were to ask a kindergarten to draw a picture of a person so the kindergarten draws a circle, and a line for the body, two two sticks for arms, and two sticks for legs. Right? Do you have any doubt what that's supposed to be? You get it instantly, right? But let's say you go and you ask Rembrandt to paint you a painting. And you say Rembrandt, I'd like you to paint a picture of a person, and he starts putting some green on the on the on the canvas and some black and some red, and you're like. Hello, Rembrandt, where's the circle and the sticks? Come on, I want to see the picture, the person. Why are you putting all these colors on there? He's like, come back in six months, right? Six months later, you come back. Wow, it pops out at you. It looks like a real person. But you didn't, it took time. It was a process. When life looks confusing to us, the Talmud says, who's the greatest artist in the world is God. There's no artist like God, the Talmud says. Because God is a master. He's creating a masterpiece all around us. When life looks chaotic and crazy, it's because you just haven't seen the end of the picture. You're not seeing the big picture. You're only seeing one small detail, one puzzle piece. Your life is one puzzle piece. Just wait. Stick around. The puzzle is being built. You're going to have your place in the masterpiece. You matter. You're part of the symphony. Okay? Okay? Now, I just want to tie everything together. The Berchus Kohanim, the blessing that the Kohanim make, is three parts. It's again three parts. What are the three parts? The first is a blessing for physical physical health. God should bless you and keep you, protect you. The second is a blessing for spiritual health. God should give you spiritual abundance. And the third is, and God should bless you with Shalom with peace. The Talmud says there is no greater vessel for blessing in this world than Shalom. Shalamus, when a person has inner peace, then blessing can come into their life. When a person has peace in their home, blessing can come into their house. But only through Shalom, shalemus, can you have blessing. And that's the three-part blessing, is that you should synthesize the spiritual with the physical. That the physical should not take away from the spiritual. And the spiritual should not take away from the physical. Instead you should make a synthesis of the two. And reveal God's unity and oneness in your life. And experience the blessings of both the physical and the spiritual. The Nazir. The guy who decides to not drink wine. So that the Torah talk calls him a, a kadosh He's holy. We talked about what kadosh means. Kedusha a few weeks ago. He's separated from the world. He's uh, connected more to God. That's what Kedusha means. But the Talmud also says something crazy. He has to bring three sacrifices when he finishes his duration of his vow. And he goes back to drinking wine. If he inadvertently drank wine, he brings three three sacrifices. He brings something called a... Uh, an Ola. An Ola is an elevation offering. It's a spiritual offering. It's fully burned up. It represents spirituality. He brings a a sin offering. He's considered a sinner when he completes his, his round. And then he brings something called a shlamim, a peace offering. Okay, what's going on here? So again, the Talmud says he's called a sinner. Why? because he separated himself from physical pleasure. Our job is to enjoy physicality. Hashem wants us to enjoy the world. Because he stopped eating wine, he has to bring a sin offering. And in fact, the Talmud says that anyone who doesn't enjoy all the pleasure in this world will someday be asked when they get up to the next world, why didn't you enjoy my world? Hashem's gonna say. Why didn't you enjoy my world? so he sins because he didn't take pleasure in this world but he also was holy he's called a kadosh he distanced himself from physical pleasure because he wanted to be, refine himself and become more spiritual so the answer is as follows is it's both there's the sin the thesis i'm holy i'm separating myself from the world there's the antithesis. I'm a, he's a sinner for not enjoying the world. God, want, What do you mean? Do you want me to separate from physical pleasure? Do you want me to enjoy physical pleasure? The answer is, then he has to bring the third offering, a shlumim, a peace offering. Because sometimes you have to go to extreme. Sometimes if you're a really angry person, you have to go to extreme, never getting angry. The truth is you're never supposed to get angry. If you're really eating too much, you have to go on a diet and stop eating altogether. Sometimes if a paper, the Rambam Maimonides gives an example, if a paper is bent, sometimes you got to bend it the other way. But the goal is balanced, Shlemus, the combination of the spiritual and the physical. Again, the exact same message. And that's the message of all three tribes, the three encampments, the Shechina, the, the Levium, the, the Jewish nation, the Torah, which was given in threes. This week's Parsha is one week after Shavuos, the holiday of Shavuos, the giving of the Torah. It's always one week after. Shavuos represents the 49, right? We had 49 weeks, 7 times 7. The 50th level is the Torah. Shavuos, this week, is the 8th week of the Omer. We counted 7 weeks. This is the 8th week. We're not counting anymore. The mitzvah is over. But this is the dimension beyond the number 7. This is the number 8, the Torah, which is to transcend the physical world. And... The number 22 22 letters of the alphabet which is the aspects of physical world the, 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 the building blocks of the physical dimension and our job is to take eight the transcendent the spiritual the Torah and bring it in to the 22 letters of the alphabet into the physical dimension to unify and synthesize both aspects of reality the physical and the spiritual Shavuos represents our wedding With God the ultimate Union Jewish people and God which is the goal is to bring together the marriage the ultimate marriage between physicality and spirituality and after the Torah was given what was the eighth dimension what took place the next day what happened after the Torah was given the Torah says that the Jewish people were commanded to go back to their tents go back to your wife and your family go back home husband and wife come back together And actually had a mitzvah of being unified physically even husband and wife because that is the ultimate expression of the torah is can you bring it into your life in a in a in a way that builds harmony but through physicality that's the message of the torah that's what's unique and novel about the torah if you didn't hear my class from last week shavuos is the unification of spirituality and physicality may we all be blessed to connect to the spirituality that exists within everything to find inner peace, harmony, outer peace, peace in our families. Hopefully that we should all find, all of you should find your spouse, your soulmate at the right time and to build a home of peace, a home that reveals shleimus, completion, oneness, unity. We should be zokha, We should be blessed to have peace in the Middle East. Finally, that the whole world and ultimately the whole world come together in the greatest expression of oneness and unity and harmony under the coming of Mashiach who will bring the whole world together in unity thank you guys for listening i want to bless you all with a beautiful shabbos questions